there's localized kind of surgeries, there's localized treatments. And it's a bit like, you know, you blow your tire out and you go to the mechanic and he fixes the tire. And then you come back the next week and you've blown the tire and the rim out and the mechanic fixes again. And then you come back again, you blow the tire, the rim and the suspension out. And eventually the guy says, are you driving into a pothole or something all the time on your way home? He says, yeah, I do. And like, you know, it's, it's don't, you know, you have to navigate the, the lower back. If the lower back was a tire or a spring, just because it's breaking there, that doesn't mean it's always the site of the problem. In other words, the localized approach can give you that palliative approach, can numb the pain, can, can, can stop the responses of letting you know when you're getting into a range of motion that could be challenging your body. But generally, it's a mechanical, um, a, a, a faulty recruitment. Um, there's something going on with the support mechanisms. Um, there can be mental, emotional referrals from organ pathways. There's quite a lot of things to consider. So the localized approach of just do a disc, you know, take it out, put in something new, um, what they're doing now and just cortisol injections. And that is a short stop solution. And unfortunately, they don't really treat or address the causality of what caused the back pain. Welcome to The Body Never Lies. I'm your host, Leela Lutz. Each week, myself and experts from around the world help you uncover the secret ways your body communicates with you to empower you in your own individual health journey. At the World Congress of Back Pain, it was said that 9 in 10 people will have back pain at some point in their life. Of course, that will occur in varying degrees. What I have seen a lot of in my work working with injuries as a Czech practitioner, is that many people who have back injuries come to me with such a glass ceiling with their diagnosis and treatment options. So if 9 in 10 of us are going to experience back pain, what can we do about it? For those who have it severely, what hope do we have? Is surgery the only option? Why is there such a high incidence of back pain? And just what is safe As you know, so many people are told never to deadlift again and limit so much activity. Today, my guest is Donal Karp, Czech faculty and Czech practitioner, and wait for it, my first ever mentor in the fitness industry. You see, almost 20 years ago, Donal interviewed me to be accepted as a personal trainer, and he was, in fact, the reason that I became a Czech practitioner. I've watched Donal rehabilitate some of the most complicated injuries over the years, and it is my pleasure to have him here today on the show to discuss the myths of back pain. Well, today, everybody, I've got a very special person on the show because this person, Donal Carr, was actually the first mentor that I ever had in my whole career. And we were just laughing, Donal, thanks for coming on the show. You're welcome here. <laughs> we're just laughing because we're going, well, wow, we're actually old because it was 20, it's coming up to my 20th anniversary of being my, being, doing what I'm doing. So when I, when I first came to Sydney and I wanted to become a personal trainer, Donald actually interviewed me and I, I will never forget because you asked me to show you how to do something on a machine and I was like, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> But you're so good about it. But anyway, I was very, very lucky. And I want to say thanks to you as well, Donald, because if it hadn't have been you who was my first PT manager, I don't know if I ever would have become a Czech practitioner. 
Well, thank you. I mean, you, you had the um, uh, the interest and curiosity to ask the right questions, so it was easy to lead you down the path in the right way. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a long path. <laughs> I'm still traveling. I'm on, I think I'm only about halfway down it, but you know, I'm 20 years into it, and I still think, oh my god, there's so much to learn. So, yeah, it takes a while. It, take, it does take a while. So, yeah, so donor was my first in, introduction into becoming a Czech practitioner and thus I went along and studied. And now donor is a Czech faculty and you've been Czech faculty for quite some time, right? Yeah, 2007, 2008, I started teaching. Um, so, yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, so tell me a bit about your career because you've had an, you've had well, what we I think we all used to laugh and about Bond because we both were uh, models at one point, which I laugh at now as well. Yeah, 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 we don't look like models anymore. <laughs> but that's because they're all just you know they're all like sixteen, and we're definitely not sixteen anymore. But you tell us about where you came from and your sure. background, and well, obviously I'm Irish, and you can tell by the accent. I've still got a little bit of it. Um, but it's okay. Uh, we put subtitles on the video. So yeah, yeah. Before I wouldn't joke about it. Um, <laughs> so yeah. Born in Ireland, got into sports, typical you know, young guy, played a lot of ball sports, um, played Gaelic football, played rugby, played um, uh, a couple of different things, got into boxing as well and weight training. And that was really my first introduction, getting into the gyms and hanging around gyms at 14, 15 or with the rugby guys in the school gym. Um, and that just kind of led to them doing more training. Went to accountancy college, dropped out of accountancy college, went to fitness university or college. Did that, got qualified, then start working in the industry. Um, and then lucky enough, I decided to come over to Australia in about two, 1997 uh, to do kind of like backpacker year, explore and play rugby. So I played first grade in, in Sydney and, and that was great fun. Got to meet a lot of Australians and uh, really fell in love with the, with the country. Um, stayed out for another couple of uh Another year, actually, the, my partner at the time got uh, sponsored. So I really got into the culture then, living here for two years. Um, and then my relationship broke up and I met my, my, my wife, Kathy, um, and she worked in the gym industry too. So from there, um, I'd been working in Ireland before I came over in the fitness industry and I got exposure to some good athletes and training and just kind of gym instructor and SNC, normal strength conditioning stuff. And then I saw a lot of trainers in, in Australia using Swiss balls and stuff. I was like, who's bringing that into the industry? And it was true Paul, because Paul only just released it the year before. Went back to Europe anyway, and then Paul's name started coming up in the conferences, went to conferences. And yeah, first conference, he kind of really schooled us or educated us in a different way to understand there was more to the fitness well-being industry and what we were doing where we were missing a whole section. Um, and some of us were intrigued. Other of us was just like, it was too deep way over the heads. It was just like, oh, I don't want to go back to college. I don't want to do that. And I had looked at going back to do physio. So it was either do mature students as a physio or do something in the industry practical. So I decided to go down the Czech route and understood it was going to be a lot of home education. And it was pitched to me like an adult kind of doing college at night. You have to put the hours in. So um, started that process and led me down a, a pathway that expanded into different types of strength and conditioning, different types of body work techniques, different type of stretching, Ralphing, Alexander techniques, stuff I'd never heard of before. And then as we got deeper into the Czech program, I started to realize I had gaps 
with my knowledge around nutrition and helping clients. And even I knew enough for myself, but didn't do enough to help or really solve some of the clients' issues I was seeing. Um, so long story, been doing that now for what's it now? Nineteen ninety one, I was qualified. So yeah, just over thirty years now. Um, and uh, as a Czech practitioner, when I got into the rehab, that's about twenty years. Started lecturing as well um, about 20 years ago. That came about from my own trainers. I had eight personal trainers. I needed to educate them. And then the gym manager asked me, would I do that for some of the other gyms? So I ended up doing that for internal house for three gyms. And then that just led on to, you know, public speaking, corporate speaking, keynote speaking, and then lecturing. And then I picked up a role in Fitness First uh, when I came over to Australia in 2003. Um, I worked as your manager for a while as a PTM and then went through the cluster and regional and then got my own department or, or division in, in fitness first doing all the education. So my role was to travel around, as you know, to educate all the trainers, the 2,500 trainers and help design with the other PTMs and the other lectures that we had involved to design the, the three levels and keep our, our, our quality of standard of training up in, in the business. And that's what led me into then Getting back out in the industry, I'd, I'd spent some time in corporate and it was fun, learned my lesson and got a, a great bunch of people that I got to hang around with and meet and, and had the opportunity to lecture for nearly seven years solid. Um, just that's all I did and um, traveling around Australia um, and internationally to conferences. So that was great fun, um, but really enjoying the last 10, 12 years getting back to in the trenches now, just working with clients and, and really back to doing what I was trained to do to help people and, and uh, there's been a lot of people that have come to me now from Sydney and now have moved up, <coughs> excuse me, in the last six months to Sunshine Coast up in Queensland. So that's where I'm based now. Very, so very I think cool. that's it. That's it. Good, good summation. So, yeah, Donald's got a lot of experience and um, – so, and I find it interesting, right, because what is like the average lifespan of a personal trainer is like 18 months? Yeah, it used to be a lot less. I think in Australia, one stage was down to about nine months and they were just burning out and not the dry tools. But it's, I think it's a lot better now. I think it's at 23, 24 months now. Yeah, yeah. But 30 years is a pretty good innings, right? Yeah, I always said I was a lifer. I'm in this for a life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know if we can back out. I don't know if we can ever back out. So what I wanted to get John on to talk about today is low back pain. And I think, well, in back pain, you know, we can extend a little bit into hip pain and neck pain. But I think most people at some point in their life have experienced some kind of back pain. And, you know, there's all kind of statistics around it, right? Like by the time you're 30, you will, you know, a certain percentage of people will have a disc injury like what, what, what are some of the general statistics? Well, let's start off. The World, World Congress of Back Pain said probably about 10 years ago that 90 or what, um, 9 in 10 people will suffer back pain at some stage in their life. Um, eight, 8 in 10 people will have back pain. Um, the majority of people that get back pain, it comes on from the 30s onwards. It used to be in the late 50s when I went through college in the 90s. We were told that disc degeneration only happened when you're 55 and older. I've got 12-year-olds now coming in with disc degeneration, um, lack of nutrition, movement, all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of statistics around water and sleep and the correlations to posture and core. Um, Shirley Sarman says there was, um, what's it like, uh, I think the statistic is 87 or 86% of us walk around with an undiagnosed disc 
Mm. So most of us have, have, don't have the pain. It's a subclinical issue. It's not presented yet as pain. So there may be some telltale signs, but we walk around and learn how to manage it. Um, I have a slight scoliosis in my body, but you'd have to put me through an x-ray to see it. It's a very slight kink. Most of us have, um, sorry, don't have optimal posture or perfect posture, as Lila will contest as well, from doing so many posture assessments. We don't find perfect posture. It's kind of like a, a fluid thing that you move in and out of. And some people may hold it for a while and then, lack of training, too much, too little, but it's something that it's kind of an um, optimal position to control. And I think a lot of us have lost that. And uh, that's really where the seated posture, the more time we're sitting and we're dehydrated, those things are going, but they're just, just some of the general stuff. Mm. So I think, um, I guess one of the things is, I think is a big myth about back pain is that when you go and see someone, for the back pain, if you do, because a lot of people just put up with it, take drugs to numb the pain. So t- two of the biggest myths that I'd like to start with is one is just localised treatment. Mm-hmm. And what, you know, so people will go to a physical therapist of some kind, massage therapist, and they will have that area massaged, adjusted, yeah. worked on, and then once the, they don't feel any pain or they have moved to a level of that they can actually move and function in some kind of way, they will consider themselves healed or yeah. as good as they're going to get. Can we talk about that as sure. a starters? It's, it's, it's very common and it's a common approach over here. Um, as I've told you, I've worked in four different continents now. I've had the, the, the benefit of seeing different medical approaches from different countries and the different approaches. Um, And then lecturing and getting access to Susie's and the Czech faculties and all those other lectures that we get to see, they just don't sit in their own countries. They present all over the world. So they get exposure too. So again, there's localized kind of surgeries, there's localized treatments. And it's a bit like, you know, you blow your tire out and you go to the mechanic and he fixes the tire. And then you come back the next week and you've blown the tire and the rim out and the mechanic fixes again, and then you come back again, you blow the tire, the rim, and the suspension out. And eventually the guy says, are you driving into a pothole or something all the time on your way home? He says, yeah, I do. And like, you know, it's, it's don't, do, you know, you have to navigate the, the lower back. If the lower back was a tire or a spring, just because it's breaking there, that doesn't mean it's always the side of the problem. In other words, the localized approach can give you that palliative approach, can numb the pain, can... Can, can stop the responses of letting you know when you're getting into a range of motion that could be challenging your body. But generally, it's a mechanical, um, a, a, a faulty recruitment. Um, there's something going on with the support mechanisms. Um, there can be mental, emotional referrals from organ pathways. There's quite a lot of things to consider. So the localized approach of just do a disc, you know, take it out, put in something new, um, what they're doing now and just, cortisol injections and that is a short stop solution and unfortunately they don't really treat or address the causality of what caused the back pain so what you're looking at is 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 a kind of yeah just an approach to what they can do to get you out of pain now and then it's up to you to try and manage that and that doesn't seem to be communicated here in australia as well as other countries or continents around the world where you're given more of a support program or exercise physiologists or check practitioners or chiros or osteos or someone who studies the back 
and learns how to work with that. A lot of the physios I'll be here do soft tissue treatments and acute injury treatments, but don't teach a lot of movement quality. They sometimes do some release work, which is great to reset the joint, but then it never really addresses why the challenge or why the joint got compromised. Was there mechanical dysfunction? Was there a tension relationship? Was there something going on that changed the orientation of where the pelvis, the knee, the hip goes? And therefore that then affected the back or an organ shut down and the organ that is being inflamed is also in the same nerve branch of the core, the transverse abdominis or some of the support muscles around the trunk. Now that's compromised. So that will down-regulate the support and the way the body supports itself and structurally holds itself to this kind of cross-bracing through slings and muscles and fascia. So that's something to, to, to look at. Um, a lot of the localized clients, I've had one client, unfortunately, he had three back injuries and then came to me um, and then we kind of addressed the issue. I had another client who had a localized shoulder issue he had three operations on one, another operation on the other, and I was writing for a magazine at the time, and he used to work for that magazine. So he, he asked me to assess the shoulder. I assessed the shoulder. There was nothing wrong with the shoulder. He had a rib that was twisted, and his pelvis was off. So his rib cage and his first angle and his clavicle was off. He didn't have to go through the surgery again for me to fix the shoulder, but the surgeon wanted to do the surgery again because, yes, his shoulder was sore. So the site of the pain was at the shoulder. And if you just look at the shoulder, you'd be saying like, yeah, there's something wrong there. We wouldn't clean it up. But he's already had that done three times. That didn't work. So really, we had to realign the rotation in the spine, the rib cage, and the pelvis and get them to stabilize and then work the right muscles. And that's like if we just gone down the localized approach and do the surgery again, he would have been back under the knife again and again and again. And there's only so many times you can tie those ligaments together. So um, the surgeon wouldn't be able to do much if he keeps on injuring it. But the surgery is not addressing the root cause of why the injury happened. It's just cleaning up what's happened. And we don't want people to be in pain. So if there's a modern medical approach out there that helps us, maybe we can still do that. But also, we need to put the plug in the leak, stop bailing out the boat all the time. That analogy works to, at some stage, address the overall etiology of the cause. Yeah, I like what Paul Czech used to always say, stop buying mistakes. Stop, stop buying Helping surgeons buy new Mercedes. <laughs> yeah, sometimes that can be. I mean, um, yeah, there's there's been so many times I've had a shoulder person that were quoted like twenty six thousand dollars for a shoulder injury or shoulder surgery, um, and um, they didn't have to go and get it because they did the right training. So other times you're not so lucky. You've damaged ligaments, cartilage, and you need to get it fixed. But then if you don't want it to happen again, you better start addressing what, what caused that dysfunction to happen. Or was it just a collision impact injury in a car accident or something? So then maybe we need to re-stabilize the joint after something like that. And that's sometimes that's left out with that localized approach or just take a painkiller or just take a cortisol injection. So, um, yeah, that's what I'd have to say about that. So what happens when, do you know what happens when they have a cortisone injection? Like how does that stop the pain? Like why do we? Well, you can definitely go onto YouTube and watch them injecting it and see what happens. It's an acid-like solution that will break down scar tissue, but it also will break down localized tissue in that area too. The best way that um, most doctors would explain that to me is there's a fly on the wall and I'll just use a shotgun. I'll definitely kill the fly. I'll definitely get the scar tissue, 
but there might be some small residual damage around the area. So also my first experience with negative response to cortisol, I didn't know there was one until one of my clients who was a professional soccer player was told or asked, requested to get another uh, a second injection of cortisol. And one of his other mates that was on the team told him to get a second opinion. I said, get a second opinion. The second opinion said, don't get it. If they do the second, then you won't be able to get any more cortisol injections because they'll have weared and, and damaged the, the, the tendon so much. So um, he was traded then to America. So, you know, it's like that's what happens in the industry because they want to get him back on the field. Hmm. So these localized things, they will work for a period of time, but at what cost? And is that really addressing why the inflammation was there or why the scar tissue was there or the cartilage was there? And there's been a lot of current research on cortisone and the, the most up-to-date consensus that I hear from professors in Sydney University and so on is that cortisone injections, we only use them for the smaller joints now. And they say Panadol or two Panadol or two Anidine or two painkillers are just as powerful now in some of the joints, but they're great for finger joints and toe joints. So it's really, they're they're now picking and choosing which joints it works best in. And, And that information was about six years old. That was about 2014 that came out. And I find that when when clients have those, they normally have them repeatedly. Yeah, like the best way if you're going to use cortisone and it does help, use that window of pain-free opportunity to start stabilizing, moving, mm-hmm. and strengthening the joint. You don't just take the painkiller just to be out of pain and then do nothing. That's like having a gap in the storm. You've got a chance now in the in the break in the in the rain to do something to change the run of the water to clear out your gullies, clear out your, you know, if there's another storm and, you know, it's prepping the system. So it'd be doing the same kind of thing if you've had the unfortunate weather we've had here in Australia mm. for the last couple of weeks. It is interesting, isn't it? Because normally people go, I'm not in pain anymore. I can just carry on with my life. Why do you think that yeah, is? Yeah, I think that's a societal thing. You know, we've been so used to, like, doing stuff. Um, some of my clients um, are not able to do the work that I do because they have to do the work. I'm like your guide on Everest. I can't carry up the map. You better be fit enough to carry, go up. I'll guide you and I'll tell you the terrain's changed and whatever's going on. But I'm just your guide. I'm just your coach. So a lot of times people have to do the work to bring their body back up to a standard of stability and strength so they don't keep on falling back into that pain cycle again and which means a little bit of work to be done around sometimes nutrition lifestyle and exercise and some people don't want to address that so it's just easier to take the injection or the pill or do the physio work and not do anything at home yourself and unfortunately they're the people that just reoccur to have multiple surgeries one of my other clients had three back surgeries and 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 that wasn't fixed um, by the surgeries so again if you don't change the movement pattern that caused the problem to get broken and you keep on using the same pattern or nobody addresses that or the weaknesses in your body, unfortunately, it's just going to be Groundhog Day because you still haven't addressed the problem. So it doesn't matter how many surgeries you get. Um, and even if you put in a new disc or they're now scaffolding new bones and stuff, you're still going to have a challenge because you're still not changing like the operation manual. It's still running the same record. I think one of the big myths too is people will say there was a specific, like we have obviously injuries that's caused from an accident or an impact, which is one kind yeah. of injury, but we can actually point the finger and say it happened right then and there. But we also have people who are doing something simple like, oh, I was just unpacking the dishwasher and all of a sudden my back went. Yeah, yeah. 
Can so, you yeah, explain that's, that's the mechanism of that? Yeah. Well, I'll give you my experience in the industry. So I've been doing this for 30 years and so 20 years deep in rehab and back people. So for the last 20 years, I would say I probably had about two or three car accidents or a plane accident or someone falling off like a, a cliff or something. But most of the back problems that come to see me are people, like you said, like I reached in and grabbed the, the shopping, which was a loaf of bread in the back of the boot of the car and my back went or picking out a glass out of the dishwasher or you know, opening up the washing machine. So that bended flex position that they've done hundreds or probably thousands of times in a poor functional way. So they didn't lower their pelvis, their knee, their hips. And then the day that they're dehydrated or it just got to that point where you're just rubbing the rope on the stone and that's the day it just snaps. So it's constantly wearing, tearing the body or constant abuse to the body or not knowing that the body's systems are overloaded and today, whatever you did, that just compromised the system. But it's generally, yeah, it's a 5, 10, 20-year process in a lot of disc injuries. It just doesn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. And there are the exceptions, you know, a rugby scrum or a car accident, a whiplash or something like that. But whiplash is kind of common, actually. That's, I've, I've actually had quite a few whiplashes. I've, actually had I've been getting more whiplashes too, but then I wonder if is that just because we're, we're trying to with so people come to see us. <laughs> well, I also believe there's a trend in the seat, the head headrest. The, the headrest has come forward more, and that changes the mechanics. So we, we, know, we know when the head goes forward of the occiput, when that goes forward, we get more mechanical load. But if your head's pushed forward and there's a whiplash, you're already in a weakened position. So I get a lot of people to turn the headrest or the, around the opposite way so it doesn't push their head forward. Mm. Um, but I don't have any clinical evidence to say that. <laughs> well, just, no, I know I wonder too much how much of it is mobile phone use because people oh, hold, yeah. their, hold their phone down like this and they scroll with their head forward. And mm-hmm. I was actually, I was like t- someone I was talking with and they were saying that actually like when you use your computer or you use your phone, a lot of people hold their breath or they mouth breathe. Mm-hmm. While yeah. they're doing that, so yeah. and our kids are growing up like that now. Like everywhere you go, you see kids who are Life sitting there. Life is the epicenter of the brain, so it, it's a dopamine response. So when you have that, when you're hunting, when people get anxious, they sometimes breathe out of their mouth if they're not trained to breathe. Properly. Well, I think that's what it was about. I think it was Dr. Christie who was on a previous episode who we were talking about yeah you know, this change in physiology from the blue light and the dopamine and people mm-hmm. mouth breathing and having this really poor posture. So your head's just hanging off your neck. Yeah. And it becomes like that's your normal head position. The same technology they use on the pokies. Yeah, <laughs> same, same technology. So, okay, so question then, because this is always one, right, and there's lots of, like, I've noticed little reels going around Instagram now saying that, so when you bend over, then you shouldn't bend, you should squat. But are, are people really going to do a squat to pick up their socks off the floor? Well, that was a train of thought back 20 years ago by Stuart McGill and still to this day advocates maintaining a neutral spine um, when you're putting on your shoes and stuff. So if I'm putting on my, my shoe, I put my leg up in the chair, I keep my spine straight and do it this way. I never bend forward. Mm-hmm. So I believe in the um, seven primal movement patterns that we need a bend function to operate on this planet to be able to maximize the hip joint the back, the glutes, and the lats to be able to lift the heaviest thing. The heaviest lift that we do as humans 
is a deadlift. And, you know, that's a bend pattern. So if you don't want to bend or you can't bend, you're missing a vital part of movement strategy. It'd be like missing one of the vowels in, in, in language. You know, you, you wouldn't be able to construct many words. So the movement pattern of bend, again, I just think it's taught poorly. Um, I've never had a problem reteaching people with disc injuries, SI joint dysfunction, laminated discs, fused discs, how to properly deadlift or bend. Um, and there's many different steps to getting them up before you do a deadlift. Um, as you know, there's a, there's a time and a place for every client on progression. Um, but I've had clients that are 65 years of age deadlifting their own body weight, like 70, 80 kilos. Mm. So um, that's not something that is um, outside the realms for a, a disc injury. That lady had a lower back injury. She had four years of recovery with me and was able to lift her own body weight at 65 years of age. So, you know, that's not bad. So when a surgeon says never deadlift or never bend, well, he's worried about the way that he's seen the deadlift or the bend being performed or how a lot of people have come in with poor deadlift form have actually been under his knife. So he's like, geez, deadlift is a very common thing to get people on the, on the table. So maybe I'll tell people not to deadlift. But for me, it's the one that I generally have to correct even trainers when I'm working with Czech students. Um, first year, second year, third year students even, working on the, the little tweaks, the differences for different injuries or understanding where the weight goes, what style and variation is best for different things. So that's kind of um, a detailed when you get into strength conditioning, but it's not as much as that when you layer the rehab then on top and you understand the 3D loading anatomy, the fascia lines, the nerve anatomy, like a strength coach doesn't really get into that information. So you can actually use your knowledge as a fitness or strength coach. And then when you have the higher understanding of the nervous system, the organs, the fascia lines, and the movement patterns that are supposed to get the right biomechanics in the joint, when you know a joint should be in a certain range or range of motion. Um, and if you've got the ability to be able to move the exercise so you can target muscles, which, you know, I learned over the years. Um, so it's a really interesting kind of concept to kind of look at the whole body and not just one aspect of what we were talking about. Mm, I think so. But also, like, do you think, I mean, what I don't know what the actual number is, but we should be able to load our posterior ligament system in a fully flexed position at a certain amount of weight right so i'm for the lay people i'm saying you should be able to bend down and pick up your socks yeah yeah i mean in a fully punched over flex position like there is a certain amount of load that a, a healthy spine can carry in that flex position yeah you should be able to carry your own body weight or lift, lift like lift your body with yeah. your body and body weight so there is then a level of competency. And, you know, I've definitely trained um, so many people through back injuries and surgeries and after their surgeries or they didn't want to go for surgery. They tried a different approach. And there is a norm that they can definitely get their own body weight. Mm. Uh, and when they got their own body weight, I can say, bye-bye, off you go to the gym now and go back to your trainers or whatever. Because now you can do, you could pick up your wife in an emergency. You could pick up your kids in an emergency. You can two gas bottles, you know, you can do stuff, you know, you're not, you know, I can't pick the suitcase off the carousel at the airport, you know, you'll be able to do those things again. Um, and you'll have capacity of spare strength to do that as well. You're not going to be able to pick up a car, <laughs> you might be able to do the sofa. And I think that's kind of like, you know, 
at least if you're a person, if you want to help someone grab a box out of a car or help to lift something, I think we have to have that capacity to be able to do that. Whether for me, otherwise it's kind of like, well, you're not really rehab. You're not back to real world life. You can't move optimally yet. So it's like you're still you're missing a gear. Everybody else has seven gears and you've only got five or six because you won't use the bend pattern or you didn't master it before because you didn't have her coaching or guidance. So maybe with the right guidance and setting up your body to get the right orthopedic range of the joint, stabilize the joint, then strengthen it, and then look at all the other factors because there could be other considerations to that as well. Well, this is a good place to talk about, I think, the fact that our job as tech practitioners was to fill that gap in between rehab and strength and conditioning. I think one of the things that's unfortunate, well, when we were talking about this in a couple of episodes ago, Ross and I, a personal trainer who's been doing um, some awesome work, um, we've lost the ability to collaborate and work together. So, um, and I think, like, it's not possible for everyone to know everything. And there's this huge gap that check practitioners get into, and I think I, I wish more people would work in that space, whether you work with the physio because you can't do the soft tissue work and the injury diagnosis, you know, so the physio does that. But then the physio doesn't understand movement like a strength and conditioning coach does because they're more seeing people in the clinic, on the table, you know, that kind of thing. So often I'll find the way a physio teaches a squat, I think, well, as soon as you load that squat up, someone's that person's going to fall over uh-huh. to teach it. I have to make a point there. If you can tell me one physio that spent more than 26 to 20 hours on exercise in their four years of college, please let me know. It, I, I 24 do. hours of exercise I covered in my first week of university on exercise college. So if you go to a physio for exercise, please, like, they're not all the same. No, they're not all the same. But And that's the thing. I think that we have to get better in the industry at going, well, that's not my scope. Like, uh-huh. I'm going to do the soft tissue work, but I know Donal can teach you, take you from this place. You're not in pain anymore. So as soon as you're not in pain from the soft tissue work, please go and see Donal and then Donal can get you moving. I mean, I know you do a lot of soft tissue work yourself. And yeah, I, I think like I know what you're getting at. I mean, it is, I say to a lot of people when they come working with me, I'm, I act really like a, a project manager sometimes because I'm sometimes coordinating physio when they come in for the treatment and I'll work with them mm. or I need a chiro or osteo to position the joint and then I stabilize it. And then I do the nutritional and the mental, emotional, I calm down the system, stabilize it. And then there's a stubborn piece or I can't release something. So I send them off to the soft tissue expert, the physio or whoever does that for me. Um, but yeah, I think that it, it is a very important thing. And it was, it was drilled into me when I started, you know, ref- when in doubt, refer out. When in doubt, the phone book comes out. No, God forbid, the phone books come out these days. So, but no, everyone knows how old we are. But like it's it's kind of that, it's that process of that you know know your lane. And um, so I am a bit like a foreman on a building site. I know a little bit about the other things to get me into enough trouble, but I also know when it's outside my pay grade. So I do work with a lot of people. I think that that was something that helped me in my success, even when I started from a young part in the, in the Czech program. I got working with two chiropractors, in Aust- an Australian and a New Zealand guy that were working in Dublin. And I ended up getting um, 12 healthcare professionals that came to my Swiss Ball rehab class. And they were just 
like so helpful and they were like so interested in all the information and that allowed me to then go as a young guy and not feel that because I knew nothing I was like so green I had no idea so you're asking silly questions I look back now like how did they throw me out of the room but you have to ask those questions and have time around those people because yes I wasn't trained as a physio a chiro or an osteo um, but we cover some of those assessment protocols to identify so we can refer out someone to diagnose or we can find out that this is a correlation and then multiple tests program, we might say, hey, I want you to get MRI or an X-ray. And now it's not a waste of time or money because we've already had these indicators from so many different tests um, to help us. And so what do you, I mean, I think a good question too for me, Sadie, as well. Let's talk about program design. So you've can't, you've seen a physio because mm. this is and this is hard. Like I want personal trainers to listen listening to know this. This is hard. But I found program design really hard, which is why I paid Donal to help me to learn it. <laughs> um, there's a real decline in the industry of the level that you should be working at, right? Like if you want to be a level four check practitioner, like I am, you have to hand in a lot of casework and you have to show a a very high amount of proficiency and one of the things I was really struggling with with program design I remember having to write this program and getting Donald to sit down and help me with it one of so I would say to people in the industry if you don't know something ask someone to help you (laughs) and Donald runs mentoring programs and I can't um, say enough about having a mentor or working with someone like Donald to help you bridge this gap between rehab and strength and conditioning because I think the huge part that's missing is understanding the program design between rehab and full strength and conditioning. So can you sort of give us a little, a few tips on that? Because, you know, just certain things like how do you, you know, yeah. I guess people expect to go, well, I, I went to the physio and I stopped hurting, so now I can go back to deadlifting. Yeah, okay. Um, I think, like, to, to wrap this up, I mean, I think, the strength conditioning element in the fitness world has been dropped by the fitness industry, the PT industry. And and I haven't met any healthcare professional that knows that the program design for an Olympic athlete, a pro athlete, a rehab person, they have no idea. So the only people that are out there, like what I did was a strength conditioning course and then a university degree, and you'll get the information, you know, otherwise I would have struggled through the Czech program. Cause remember Paul, had been working with the Chicago Bulls, Olympic guys, professional athletes for years. He knows how to program design at the elite level. He, he spent a lot of time in different Olympic um, federations and so on, training some of the top athletes in the world. And he's a clinical expert and that. And then he expects the same level of standard of when he writes a program that our students, he wants to teach us. So we've got some in-depth courses of program design and advanced program design, which, as you know, is about 10 or 11 hours at least of study. And then when you go through the courses, when we teach the different levels on IMS1, for example, we'll spend literally about two hours every day breaking down programs, doing a board session and explaining the time under tension, the reps, the sets, the frequency, how many times a week it's going to be for different types of tissues, how you periodize out. You can't just go from zero to hero. You can't just go out of pain to deadlift. As you said, there's a step-by-step process. There's an adaptation in the body that needs frequency and overload. So if you don't have enough frequency, 
the body won't respond to the right training. And I, I love cooking, so I make the same analogy to, it's like the heat in the oven. You will either undercook it or overcook it or burn it. And there's a certain heat for different types of muscle. There's a certain rep range for different types of muscle responses. So if you're working an endurance athlete, it's a different rep range to your rugby player or your, your surfer. It depends on the length of the sport and the activity. So all of those factors for me, um, they tie into the program design. Program design also for me, I have a real uh, challenge when we come into seeing lots of different kind of hit training programs for a rehab person. Um, I've had Olympic athletes that are representing Australia doing CrossFit sessions. And they're just put, picking a workout of the day from the cloud, from some other box around the world and saying, I'm going to do that workout today rather than specifically design strength programs. And there are strength coaches in the AIS and Homebush that I know that are really, um, really qualified, well-experienced trainers. But it doesn't seem to be filtering out. I mean, we're still seeing it around the world. Program design, when you get a program, there, there needs to be some order in regards to how the program is laid out. There has to be some rational thought to the time under load, how much of a, of a load this person can handle based on their, their allostatic or physiological load or their stress level or book level. So you can't just have, you know, you do 50 reps where, you know, some days they could do 20 reps, other days they could do 40 reps. And they may be able to get to 50 reps in two, three months. But if you write that down, that's too, it's too disheartening. It's too far away from where they are. So the program has to cycle. So I cycle all of my programs every six weeks. Everybody's program cycles every six weeks. So, and that's done on the basis that I have to review the client before I then put the next client case in. But my cases are more um, in flux because people are in rehab and going in out of pain. But when you're, when you're getting a program for general training, you should be training, changing it every four to six weeks or maybe eight weeks if you, if you want to do a longer cycle. Most athletic programs, when I work with pro athletes, we're changing it up every four to two weeks. They don't stay in the same bunch of exercises and intensities or speed at which they do the exercise, which is the tempo at which they do the exercise. Sometimes we pause, sometimes we go faster up or slower down. So there's differences that we can do um, and then there's the loading. So the way we load, we can change the force curve. So that's really important to know where the rip is and a tear in a muscle or where the fascial injury is or where you're trying to pump fluid or nutrition back into the joint, how you want the muscle to contract. You want the proxal to distal or distal proxal or you want to come closed chain or open chain. You know, where does that fit into the program design? And then I just... I'm doing some stuff, kind of surf program stuff, and just doing some research around that. And I was spending today just researching some of the, the best exercises on the internet for surfing. And, you know, there's some exercises there. And, you know, if you're on a surfboard, the thing moves, right? It moves underneath you. So if you're doing push-ups off the floor, does that really replicate something moving underneath you? So if you put your hands on a Swiss ball or some kind of wobble board, now we've got something that replicates. So... We've got an uneven surface and tilting and riding reflexes, two different nerve branches in your body, but this great internet training stuff, they're training off the floor. The last time I saw surfing is not done on the floor, it's done on the sea. So again, it 
cool little exercises, but just the wrong medium. The program design is flawed. Mm. Sometimes the order of exercises is a big challenge for people to understand and the length of time, how many sets and reps, what they're supposed to do. Lily, you know this is a huge topic. Um, but I think that the major thing for me is when I get physio sheets or some other program from trainers or check practitioners, what most, most of, what most of us do wrong is the order, the complexity, and we put in exercises that sometimes fatigue or challenge the joint before it can be stabilized. Mm. And, and that to me is the real challenge, is trying to educate people enough to get to that point. Um, I love doing it with my clients because I'm a teacher and a lecturer for the last 20 years. I just go, right, just bypass. I'm just going to straight teach the client. Mm. Well, I think as well, like a lot of physio programs, and I work with some great physios, we're not bagging out all physios, but sometimes I get programs from physios and they're just boring. They're just batshit boring. And (laughs) no one's going to do something that they don't, they find boring. They're just not going to do it. I think the, the number one thing I see is like if I opened up one of my uni books from 1990, you'd see the exercise in black and white pictures. They're the kind of exercise we see. Mm. And they do a little stick man. They have no idea what that's really supposed to do. And it's it's a general approach for everybody. Everybody gets the same little handout. Um, so it's not tailor-made to the specific you know, injury or disc or problem that's going on. I've never had two clients that are the same. I've never had the same injury twice with any client. So every disc injury is subtly different and everybody is different. So the terrain is different. So the game is different. We're kind of playing the sport that the field changes every day. So it's a different client every day. And we have got to keep on our toes to navigate that different um, environment for the client, the best maximize their response. And I think if you don't have someone helping you with organizing your exercises, and that's another thing, Stretches, mobilizations, corrective mobilizations, corrective exercises are programmed different to an exercise program in CrossFit or a marathon runner's program or just a guy that swims or a surfer. There's a different way that we train. We look at all facets, and it's not just specifically for one sport or aspect. So I think that's important to know too when programs are. It's super important because I think a lot of people will go, will just look at someone on the internet and say, well, they had a back injury and they got better, so I'm just going to do yeah. what they did to get better. And that's not, you know, and there's a huge problem with that. Like I worked with a rower once and she had a fleck, the physio, she'd worked with this physio for quite a long time and she was actually getting, she felt she was getting other pains elsewhere in her body working with the physio. And he was had addressed that she she couldn't keep her foot straight in the boat in the so he was trying to train her to squat with her foot in this straight position and so she was doing these squats against the wall trying to keep her foot straight anyway so I got her she came to see me and I said okay well, let's get you on the erg because I think the first thing is like you have to actually see the person in their environment to actually assess what is going on and so I got her on the erg and I could see this foot I could see it this every time she would come in full full flexion before she pulled out she would really rotate her foot out to the left and you can't do that and so it's like okay yes that's causing the pain in her back definitely but you can't just say you're not allowed to do that so I'm going to correct it and you're going to keep doing this friggin exercise until you don't do it anymore like it makes me yeah. think of one of those 
Karate Kid movies, you know, like wax on, wax on until you, until you like, (laughs) it's not. And what, what happened for her when I assessed her hip and all the range of motion in her hip, it was really, really tight. And then she had a whole lot of digestive issues. She had some gut issues. So we had to clean all of that up and work on the range of motion in her hip. And then the back pain went away. But it was really interesting to me because this physio sent me all these papers of flexion disorders in rowers and was saying she has, she's a rower, there's a, his, there's a study on rowers and flexion disorders, this is what she has. And mm-hmm. so he'd given her a cookie-cutter program to fix this flexion disorder. Do you want to just talk a little bit about that and specificity and looking outside yeah. of the injury? Yeah, I mean, that's another classic approach that our, our industries have fallen into is that we've tried to make it easy approach or a one-size-fits-all or this is what we do for every knee joint and hip joint. We give them that squat variation or whatever they were giving them. And to quote a paper is just irrelevant in this situation because if he hasn't assessed her pelvic tilt and he doesn't know how to qualify a flexion disorder or extension disorder, well, then... That's just no information of relevance or good. If he has an approach that he says, okay, this is what they're saying, and she meets all these parameters, I've tested her, and she's exactly the same as the people in the study, meaning that the pie length is the same, the anterior pelvic tilt was the same, the length of the lumbar spine was the same, the length of the thoracic was the same, and the muscle imbalances were the same. Because if you do, if you don't have that, then every case is different. We just talked about that. So when someone goes a generalized approach that you have a flexion disorder and everybody has to do the same thing, I remember earlier on in our career, we were told that you do McKenzie's for everything or extensions for everything. And then that changed. And oh, well, sometimes we do a little bit of gapping. And then it was like, oh, now we do gapping and extension. And then it was just like, you guys need to make a decision yourself. It's your client. <laughs> you need yeah. to assess and then tell us this is the issue and then say, okay, that's the protocol because it's not a generalized approach. That's the, the dark with your eyes closed and just pin the tail on the donkey stuff. We're, we're a lot better now. We have a lot more tools to assess. We have a lot more people around that know a lot more of the different systems of the body. So we learn the eight different systems of the body and we learn how to then integrate those approaches across through different fields. So, Sometimes we have to talk to a psychologist. Sometimes we have to talk to a counselor. Sometimes we have to talk to a surgeon. Sometimes we're working with a nutritionist, dietitian, some type of a healer. That I've so many different healers out there. It's, oh my God, it's just, I never keep up with them. But I understand the body. And once we understand the body, we can start to then bring those things in. So remind me what we were talking about there for a second. <laughs> I was just talking about... You know, I think there's a big problem in our industry where we just go, well, you have X problem, you know, so and then so if you have X problem, then the solution is solution A and I'll give solution B to these people, you know, and it's the same. You see it in everything, right? And I think a lot of it is to do with the consumer. So, you know, I get so many people come to me because I'm doing so much thyroid nutrition now. I just want, I literally just want a list of foods that I'm not allowed to eat and not allowed to eat. And I just yeah. want to follow that. It's like, yeah. well, okay, but still you need, you know, the right to get the right macronutrients at the right time for your biochemical individual. Everybody's trying to simplify the most complicated thing in the world. And it just can't <laughs> be done. And, you know, as you said, and, and as we said at the beginning of this, um, 
you know, the isolation approach is, is fine. We're trying to give some general help out there, but it's just, you know, a general approach. And, and, and it doesn't really cut the mustard. And at this point, it's like really, there's so many like, oh, do some rotary cuff issues if you've got a labral tear. Well, that could cause more problems, especially if the arm is in the wrong position. It's the same with extensions. So you could be causing more problems by going hyperextension. And the extension may be needed just in one segment, but not allowing the other segment to move. So we might have to block it. And that's where a skilled therapist um, would learn how to do that. Um, and then once you learn how to get the segments working, then we now have to transition them up to a rehab exercise and then a general exercise or bodyweight exercise. And then you do like a strength conditioning exercise. Mm-hmm. So the specification of just here, everybody that has an L5S1 disc injury, do this, do this stretch, this exercise, and eat this way and you'll be fixed. It's a fallacy. And if you haven't learned that by now on the planet, well, you're going to be duped again and again and again. Secondhand car salesman, watch out. Sorry, <laughs> right, like we, we have to, like I'm now a grumpy old man. You have to grow up at one stage. <laughs> be, a, be an adult. You know, I love to say that to myself 25 years ago, but it's the same. We all have to grow up and look at like these, these choices I'm making ain't working. If you've done three, four surgeries and it hasn't worked, you know, there's a game called, and you hit three times, you're out. Okay, so that's three strikes and you're out. Like, give it three goes, but if it's not working, change tack, gather more information, ask a mentor, reach out to someone. Yeah. So when we are talking about program design, I think it's really interesting the way we would do things because I sometimes I watch people do rehab. Like I've, hmm. I had someone who had a brain injury and he was showing me the rehab they were getting him to do at the hospital, and I couldn't work out why. Yeah. anyone would I worked I worked I worked in a couple of hospitals with clients where I've been asked to come in by the family and help the physios and when you get in there you generally meet level three or sorry year three year four students and physios or physios that are working in the public system couldn't get a job in private system so they're generally not the, the high end of the class and then there's other guys and girls in there that are so great and they 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 do movement quality stuff that's very different. So uh, one of my experiences, um, a guy from San Diego University, he was well known for working with biomechanical issues. Um, and yeah, his program design was sketchy at best. It would never hold up in what we would do. But his results were great because his approach was similar. He kind of warmed up the tissue, mm. the tissue, stabilized the joint, and then taught them a strategy to strengthen it. And then gave them a reinforcement to go home with and practice. Now, he didn't address the nutrition and the lifestyle and all the important things there. So, you know, for me, there's, yeah, there's, there, there's room for that kind of stuff. But it's, I think you're, you really need the full package. I mean, as an example, like if you, if you do a back injury and you don't eat collagen and you don't have good water and you don't sleep, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even put a dollar on the bet. Like it's wasted money. It's not going to work. Um, you know, there's so many people that miss out on the other factors and the program design and the way you put it together is just as important as when you get up, how many hours you sleep and how much time you put into healing yourself and how much time you keep on undermining yourself with negative movement or negative thoughts or negative nutrition or negative lifestyle factors. You can have the best exercise program from the best physios, chiros, osteos, whoever they are, and stuff up the rehab by not sleeping, not eating right, 
repeating posturing your position in your body, sitting, ergonomic, bad position. And so those factors, you need really someone to manage that a little bit better. Mm. So I wanted to, what I was leading into there was infant development and how we start looking at infant development, which I don't, I think, yeah, there's more sort of um, movements or wellness groups coming more into the infant development stuff and starting with that as a rehab. And every time I teach that stuff with people, they find it so fascinating. Well, it was a big aha moment in my career when I learned about infant rehab, infant rehab and and I suppose Paul introduced that to me and, and the Czech faculty. Um, and it is very powerful. Um, I use it with most of my neck and lower back injuries. And then great maintenance for athletes and especially jiu-jitsu surfers, people who move and contort their body in different positions to have the ability for the spine to ambulate uh, in all different directions. So when you're inchworming or moving back up and down and then we do on the front as well for the jiu-jitsu and surfer guys so they can inchworm on their face. Um, and, and those things are really great for re-segment orientation. So as an infant, we learn how to move and we learn in utero, which is in the womb, in fluid, and then we come out and we come from navel radiation. So the nervous system as it grows up and myelinates out, which is closing up the sheet around the, the nerve. So we get a stronger impulse. So if that starts to envelop out we kind of learn how to move as what we call like a starfish which is from navel radiation which is like a core contraction wave that sends up through the body a paraspinal movement and that wave contraction starts to get these neurons to fire it starts to toughen up ligaments it starts to work hard the surfaces of the body in the back of the pelvis and the shoulder blades so they get more calcium laid down you start to articulate your joints and so on and then the baby rolls over and starts to move on all fours or on their belly and that starts to develop curvatures in the spine. And as that starts to go through the infant development stages, the infant will either get proper time in that development stage and learn the skills or attributes that they should have got in that environment, and then they'll move up. So they eventually get into their hands and knees, and then they start doing kind of mammalian crawling, and then they get to somewhere where they do what they call recreational reach, which is reaching for stuff and pulling themselves up. From there, they get into all them their general movement patterns. But infant development, whiplash clients, neck issues, and lower disc injuries that are reoccurring from mechanical, like a surfer that keeps on doing the same injury and gets the surgery, gets the cortisol injection. And it's just the micro mechanics. Um, I'm, I'm finding that quite interesting. Uh, I've worked with a couple of surfers now that have had lower back injuries, and that L5S1, that iliolumbar ligament on the left side, it's normally overstretched and just that position they put their back leg in and the meniscus problems, the internal rotation, a bit like getting your roller to have the foot in when the acetabulum of the pelvis is designed to be more that position, not to be faced mm-hmm. in, so that will encroach the head of the, the leg in on the, the joint. So, um, yeah, there's um, a lot to learn there from that stuff. It's really, it's really fun to, but you know what? I think I talk a lot about this on this show is that people are uncomfortable with these practices like writing a food journal because you have to sit with yourself doing infant development can be an emotionally confronting exercise would you agree we we, yes you have traditionally um certain blockages and so on releases can happen and it just depends i find that's going to happen 
no matter what I do with them. If I open up the diaphragm on the Swiss ball, it'll have the same response. And it's that certain kind of unlocking of different joints. And if they trust you and you're in their friendly environment, they will feel comfortable to um, open up emotionally. Um, and then you'll find out some kind of issue sometimes there. But I position it differently. Sometimes I talk about rewiring movement quality, recoding the body. It's like your hardware is corrupt and we're going back to the CPU and we're going to use the original one dot bit codes to do the original coding in your computer. It's like your hard drive's corrupt. We're going to strip the whole thing and start again. How do we learn how to move? Oh yeah, as a baby. So let's start on the body, on the belly, and we transition them through them all. And then I say, okay, I want you to practice this at home. And then we go from there. But um, yeah, I think it's, I think if you go back to infant development, it sounds like you're going back to infant training or something like that. You go back to kindergarten. And I think it's really more it's like it's a it's a new age hack. It's a body hack on how to go back in and recode movement sequences again. So we're going to use the skill sets that the humans use to learn how to navigate themselves on the planet. And we're just going to reintroduce them in the way we do it with adults. So all of, you know, Linda Hartley's work and all the fascia work comes into play here as well. So I found Guy's work is great for that, for overlapping that. And then a lot of the 3D movement stuff that we see from Gary Gray and the functional cable stuff that we do in medicine ball training, I mean, that's also very important after those type of techniques are used. So there's what well, so Jonah was talking about, Marina Hartley, and she wrote a great book called The Wisdom of the Body Moving, which I highly recommend to anyone. I reckon if everybody could just like move, like spend some time doing that movement, it's so good for the soul. I've actually been teaching it at my daughter's school. She goes to a Montessori and they're very much about having an environment that encourages kids to move in the um, infant community. And yeah, it's, um, it's amazing how much our environment, I guess this is a good place to talk about it too, right, is that how our environment is actually causing us to be so dysfunctional. And so I'm not saying, like, I really admire Donal and Kathy to go and live up in the hinterland in the country and be closer to nature, but that's not the reality for every single person. I mean, even for me, through the pandemic, I really had to pivot, I hate using that word, but I had to pivot my business and I run now run an entirely online business and I sit I sit on a Swiss ball. I'm sitting on a Swiss ball right now, but I sit at a computer all day. <laughs> and so, but I, I have a, you know, a really successful business doing that. So sometimes the reality of the environment that you're in is such a way that you actually need to compensate for that, right? Like, and this is where this infant development stuff comes in and training. I mean, training was something that was made up by man to make up, you know, of a deficit that man had created with all mod cons and technology and stuff like that, right? But children are really being um, disadvantaged by this. Yeah, it's like a desensitization. They're not having enough risk reward. They're not allowed um, play enough in environments that, you know, when I climbed up a tree when I was younger, I knew not to reach for that branch because the last time I did it, if I didn't get it, I'd fall or I saw my brother fall or my friend fall. And so there was an understanding that that's beyond my capability. But it's kind of like we're now afraid to let our children do anything. The environment has been stifled a little bit, a bit like the helicopter parent, you know, that won't let anybody do anything. So I think that that's something, but um, I just bring it back to one point. 
I'm 35 minutes to an airport, which is closer than what I live to in Sydney to an airport. So <laughs> maybe think you I'm <laughs> close to the society that I was in, in Sydney. Yeah, I'm, I'm only 15 minutes to Newsom, so it's cool. Um, but the thing is, I suppose all of those um, life environmental factors and the way we've been putting children into um, shoes and certain types of school bags, they were so poorly designed. And I've done in my son's school and both of the schools, when my, both of my sons went in, I, I went in and did pro bono work and, and gave both of the schools free lectures and teaching the kids. And, and my, my sons then went to a sports high academy in, in Narrabeen and I helped do some lectures there for a whole term where I took a lecture and teach passed on, like I call paying it forward, you know, giving it on to the kids. I'd love to have someone of my caliber come in when I was a kid and I was interested as a 16-year-old working out in the, with the weights room with the rugby guys and some of them knew what they were doing. We just didn't get exposure. And I think that our kids need to have exposure to exercise and movement, but it shouldn't have to be formalized exercise. I think the CrossFit kind of theme is really great, getting people in community, targets, working towards goals. I just think they need to polish a couple of things up and like every industry, so they'll learn as they go along. And then we, I think, still need to work with kids to get them to move more and exercise more. I've had a couple of clients now, and I never had anybody before that had never done exercise. Like a client that had done no exercise as a child, had done nothing. And that was the first time I'd ever met someone like that. And that was only like 10 years ago. And now they're becoming more popular, that there are people in society that don't do any formal movement and they don't play any sports or don't do anything in school um, and unfortunately do what you're doing sitting down all day, um, which is adding to the problem of our environment. So exercise doesn't have to be formalized, go to a gym, huff and puff. It can be generalized movement and activities. I'm now on a property and I'm cutting wood and I'm digging and you know I'm doing manual labor, which I'm loving, getting back to doing stuff. Like even cutting grass and doing stuff, it's hilly property. So it's like hill sprints and it's like sled pushes. So it's not just cutting grass for me, but... I can only do it when I'm when the weather is good. So I have to work and make a living during the day like everybody else. So I don't want to become a landscaper. But I enjoy if I get an hour or a half an hour, go to the gym or go out and cut some wood. I'm gonna go outside and cut some wood. So again, that's a movement quality that I can do and I can go play basketball with my son or do whatever I want to do because I've done all the things in the gym and kept those movement qualities there, the squat, the lunge, the bend, the push, the pull, the twist, the gait, kept my joints stable. I still have some postural issues, but I'm managing them in that fluid position. And I've been quite lucky not to get any pain or injuries from them. So I think the environment of a child and the environment of an adolescent sets us up for failure or success, depending on the, the stresses and the environment we, we engage our children into. Um, so, you know, getting to play sports, getting to play music, getting to move, get them out in nature, connect them to activities. Um, you know, it sounds like, I'm, um, but, you know, getting kids to shovel and sweep and saw and hammer and simple things. But, you know, I, some of us are missing those things. We should go out and do things and get active. I mean, it's up to people to be a little bit more aware of that not everything should happen in the gym. We've, we've done that because society, we're not as moving as much. We're not walking as much. We're not as active as much because we're all taking money and transport and so on. Even just starts, I think, as children. Like, I think even 
like what I've loved about being part of the Montessori community is how, when and taking Shanti there when she was six months old was how little there is to play with. <laughs> you know, it's not whereas nor I found normal daycare there was so many toys and so many things and it was just so overwhelming and you know whereas when it's just like actually have the time to look around you and get curious and then the second point is no one ever gets anything for you you have to go and get it yourself <laughs> you know even when you're six months old if you if you want to get something no one will get it for you <laughs> they want you to be right. motivated to you know yeah go into that reptilian crawl like obviously they'll bring it you know when we talk context of the yeah. age and that sort of stuff but it's not this instant gratification of someone giving you stuff all the time I've worked with a couple of clients and, and friends of mine that have had kids that have hip dysplasias and so on and then trying to teach them because they were doing bear crawling and and that's what we do. We put objects in front of them and create environments or different types of rugs and surfaces that when they're crawling over they come to, they're inquisitive, what's that pink rug thing in the corner? So they try and move to it and you help the, con- or the, the, the child move. So I educate them, the parent, the father, the mother on helping the, the child initiate the right type of infant development. Um, and, yeah, it's it's about if the stimulus is there, if the reward is there, if the child is interested. Uh, but, yeah, if you pop a phone in front of a child now, I mean, like, well, they're not going to be interested in moving anywhere. They just well, sit no. still. So, yeah. It's the environment, yeah. It's the, it's the impetus. It's the, yeah, what, what are we doing? What's the, the inspiration to do that? So I think the big thing that everybody thinks about when they get back pain is that I need to work on my core. Mm-hmm. So we, we mm-hmm. that's good. That's good. You do. But there's a lot of myths around the core, and what the core is, what its mm-hmm. functions are, how it works. So I thought maybe we could go through, um, how do you want to do this? I guess like let's talk muscular about the core first and then maybe we could go through some of the foundation principles and how they affect before. Yeah. Um, I think there's still a lot of uh, confusion in people that come from different fields and don't actually study mechanics. Um, and, and I have written for many magazines and I was pulled up once by a professor from Queensland about my term of using the core muscles for the spine because in their medical world they use the intervertebral muscles along the spine as their core muscles. They don't consider the trunk, the core. They consider the spinal cord, the core. Okay. So they have a different classification of when you're talk, talking about core muscles. So then that confuses because surgeons, professors are talking to physios, the core muscles are these things. And then the experts in exercise and movement and biomechanics are saying, no, it's all the wires and structures that hold the system together. It's not the little intrinsic guys. It's a combination of the intrinsic guys with big guys. And then we had the Queensland professors uh, from... Uh, Queensland University, which is Hodgson Hyde's, they start looking at drawing the belly button, engaging the transverse abdominals. And Paul Hodges discovered that there was a feed-forward mechanism back in 1906 or something like that, where um, when you turn on or move a leg, your body has to stabilize the trunk so your leg can hinge from that solid platform. So it was a, a contraction in milliseconds, like 140 milliseconds before your leg moved, your core would turn on. If you wanted to move your arm, it was like 180 milliseconds or so, or so 80 milliseconds before your arm um, uh, lifted. So the core would fire first because if you did that and the core, you'd fall over. So it's displaced with the weight. And then there was this whole argument about 
the Queens and professors brought out a book and that was misinterpreted through the industry that um, the book was when in lower back pain, when in lower back pain. Okay. And everybody misses that bit of the book. <laughs> it's in the title. So when in lower back pain, your back acts this way. It doesn't say your backpack or your core acts this way all the time in lower back pain, stabilization of your lower back. So there was a kind of a, people didn't read the book. I've read the book. I have to read the book. It was part of my prerequisites for the Czech Institute. So when you read the book and you see what they did and how they did their studies and what they did, and it was very isolated and it was very much, you know, using ultrasounds. And we see the cueing now being interpreted very differently around the world. But in 2000, there was a big clash of ideas between local stabilization versus global stabilization of bracing and turning on the big guys and the kind of like inner unit stabilization, drawing, hollowing, which were all per terms to describe what normally happens when you cough or whatever your diaphragm and how that works. So then the cueing kind of war started. What's the best words? How do we do it? What's the best exercises? The key response is that the confusion led to a lot more clarity. And for me, anybody still confused on the core um, I think we've kind of gone past that. And a lot of us that have been working in the industry know how to do that. Um, and I think you just got to get used to, as I said, there's no one size fits all. And trying to find the super exercise or way to engage the core, I've had to do multiple different things to engage people's core. And it's not just the same verbal cue of draw the belly button in or pull up through the, the, the pelvic floor muscles or, you know, do something else. It's always individual. There's the general rule when we start that out. But then as the you know, a rehab specialist or whatever you want to call yourself, check practitioner or whatever you do, you need to be able to work with the person that's in front of you, not just the theory. So as we work through the core, the core is supposed to stabilize and contribute to the platform for other muscles to act off and stabilize the joint so that joint doesn't get pulled out of position. So there's isolated stabilization and then there's a recruitment to other muscles and a continuation of fascia lines and if that joint or compressed area isn't held tight when that kinetic force comes up you'd either go into the joint or dissipate out into a different part of the body instead of being dissipated through what the body had intended to the muscles the transverse abdominis the diaphragm the pelvic floor those inner unit muscles is a term is a teaching term and that's used to describe one group of muscles that act in the same way on the same nerve branch and then there's the other muscles that lie on the outside but it's like saying, this is the good hand and this is the bad hand. And I kind of go, well, God gave me both or nature, whatever. So I'll use them both together. You've got a, a strong system on the outside. When I played rugby and I went up for a ball and someone comes to tackle you, I'm not just doing my inner unit. I've got everything turned on. But if I didn't have my inner unit, my spine could twist or buckle or shear. And if I, if I only got my outer unit, I could have compressed my spine. So then when I got hit, I could have caused damage as well. So we need to have the underlying inner unit working. And that is very easily disrupted through pain, dysfunction, disc injuries, nerve compression, shut down by organ dysfunction, uh, microbiome, uh, leaky gut, fungal parasite, and the list goes on and on and on. So the core is, again, you have a look at where people do all these Pilates work and they can't stabilize their core because they're only good in their environment in their Pilates class and their reformer but in real life when they walk around and pick up the messages and shopping, they're only good on that. They've learned a different environment. And it's the same with other people, with other sports or activities. They just get good at one thing or holding the body in one position. 
We look at it as a 360, but not just as an inner and an outer, but an integrated system. And I think if anybody doesn't look at the core as an integrated system and still in this camp of inner and outer unit, you've missed it. Go back, go back, go back to the 20s, live that, live that again. We've gone way past that. Everybody understands it's like the aerobic and anaerobic system. It's your left arm and your right arm. There's a time to use my right arm and there's a time to use my left arm. There's a time when I pick up a pencil, I just need hollowing, bracing, lower level contraction on my abdominal wall. And then when I go to lift up a guy or lift up a heavy weight or a rock or something, then I need to turn on my big guys with my small guys. I need my full team on the field. I can't just look at one player. And unfortunately, the way we're training the core or the way I see it trained, I haven't given someone a sit-up off the floor in 30 years. I haven't given someone a plank in 25 years since I learned how bad it is for the spine. If you don't, if we don't, allow people to get pulled up on bogus, I don't know, exercises and that are labeled as a great way to condition. Every exercise has its time or a place or an application. But for the application of training the abdominal wall to its full range of motion, they are not great exercises. Um, you can do different things with plank variations and different abstracts and the same with a sit-up so we can change a sit-up to a full body crunch over a swiss ball or a bosu so we can articulate the full spine and not stop the spine from moving by the floor and there's other ways that we can kind of increase the core activation one of the big things for me is that your butt muscle is a core muscle your lat muscle is a core muscle it's connected to the core influences the core and helps that lumbar fascia engage to create that interspace between the discs, the vertical dimension, when the transverse turns on. So if the transverse turns on, the pelvic floor turns on, the diaphragm turns on, we say it creates that fluid ball principle. But then you need the outer unit as well to help you stabilize that as you're running, as you're moving, and they're supposed to work in an integrated fashion. So, I mean, I've written so many articles on the core, and it's been asked so many times, and I do a full-day lecture on that for fitness professionals. And then, uh, you know, I've talked on the core. I remember doing a three-day course for the fitness professionals in and fitness first, all the group fitness instructors. So I had to do a three-day course on just the core. So yeah, I can talk on that topic for a long time. Oh, maybe we should have just called this podcast The Myths of the Core. <laughs> I think, you know, it's, um, it's about what I was talking about crunches with someone the other day and I was like, well, isn't there a – a content like an application where a crunch would be appropriate and I was well thinking well I guess maybe for like a, a martial artist but you know if they well, have to get off the floor someone that's got a flat thoracic spine and you've got to reintroduce the curvature by reducing that angle of the flaring ribs so you've got to bring the ribs back down so we may do something there to shorten up the rectus but I would now use some of the different uh, Eldoa techniques that Dan mm-hmm. and Susie use now to shorten up the fascia here and the connective tissue and then work on the dumb what we call dumb stupid muscle later um, I work on the nervous system and the fascia integration system and the muscle will follow along if you if you talk with the generals as such mm. so yeah it's just about the context with everyone because yes Someone who does jiu-jitsu, for instance, would lie on the floor in that crunch position for a long time, but they're doing it under load from various different directions. So why do you need to train an over? So they're not crunching. <laughs> so that's, that's like 
a cyclist that's already in that position, you wouldn't want to do crunches for a cyclist that's in that position. But if it's a weakness or is it just taut, weak, long, you know, there are all the things that when we assess, we find it out as, as practitioners, as a faculty member or a check level five or IMS level five, that's what we do, right? So we, we work on assessing the individual case, designing out a program, and then work with the whatever shit hits the fan, you know, deal with the person. And there's never just a plan doesn't go to perfect every time. We have to adapt. You know, I've had three clients this week come down with COVID. So we've got to add that in now into all these other complicated issues of autoimmune issues and back issues and all sorts of other stuff. So um, as you can see, that can become quite complicated there. So I think the first thing we've we've being able to activate your core would be the first thing on the totem pole, which would be breath. Yeah, breath, yeah. I mean, if you're not breathing properly, you're not working the diaphragm. If you're not working the diaphragm, you're not pumping fluid and water in there, and then you're not going to be able to oscillate and not going to get paracelsus wave, and you're not going to get interspinal fluid going up and down through the spine. So, you know, breath. But before that, it's consciousness. So your psyche is on top of the totem pole. So the psyche is on the top. Then it's breath, and then we go into the other areas. So, yeah, I mean, the psyche, you know, if you're anxious, then that speeds up the breath. So it's a kind of a knock-on effect, same kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right, because Susie and I were talking about keeping the psyche as more of like a floating kind of thing, really, because sometimes that's too hard for people to go into straight away, right, when they come to see you. They come see you for a back injury and they come out like, shit. I don't, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have a ball like that one. <laughs> if you wanted to float, you would have put it floating. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I am nervous about that. And certainly from my background, it's not something that I had a forte in. I never thought going to fitness or accountancy college that I'd be talking to people about human psychology mm-hmm. 20 years on or dealing with PTSD issues or uh, addiction issues or working with psychologists um, uh, and counselors with my clients and and. That's been, you know, very educational and uh, an eye-opener for the last 10 years. I had to go through a lot of work myself to be able to understand that and go through all my shit and wash that stuff out in public myself before I could start understanding where other people come from. But I'm more, I'm a life coach. I will not do psychological train retraining or that's the counselors and that's the psychologists. I just work along beside them. I help you uh, or the client put themselves in the best opportunity to support that learning, support that um, guidance or whatever exercise or work they have to do. Um, but it is, yeah, me and Susie come from that field where we were more physical stuff and then all that mental, emotional stuff. And we was really like, oh, wow, we've got to get into this. So, I mean, we're still in the industry and we've, we've done it, but it's probably our four days where we like to work on all the physical stuff maybe. So, it's a big topic, I know. It is a big topic. It's a hard one. I think that, you know, sometimes like people will recognise their back pain as stress, right? It happens every time I get stressed. Yeah. Yeah, and there's triggers to it. There's sometimes mental emotional issues or strategies that they have where they, they run the same dogma programming, they react to the same situation the same way, which winds them up, or they don't have a, a, a situation to recognise a triggered word or a, position they put themselves in or the blame game or archetype they're running out so whatever they're they're working with the first step is just bringing their awareness to some of those things and giving them some better tasks and tools to do 
and give them some techniques to use when those first feelings come up um, and then work through some exercises where they start connecting to things that help them to maybe go through those invisibility walls or, you know, those uh, rainbow bridges, as we call them, kind of make that gap over where they thought there was an impossibility. I can't go through that. There's a different way around that. It's giving them a, an opportunity to solve the problem and, and kind of cueing them or nudging them in the right direction, a tweak here and there, a suggestion. Um, and that sometimes is helpful. Books, mentors, I you know get a lot of people to do the self-help guys, you know, some of the meditation stuff, but then reflection back and I can refer out to the Pauls and whoever else, Joe Ushton or Susie's or whoever I've worked with before and lots of practitioners that I work with now around the world. Yeah, it's um. so how would, I mean, it is really important to uh, do that mental, emotional stuff and I've probably gone more down that path mm. than the movement side because movement unfortunately with COVID and everything I haven't actually been able to do a lot of movement work um, and having babies and stuff like that so um, I've gone more down that mental emotional side and will work a lot with other practitioners like I've actually seen a couple of Susie's clients at the moment but you so I think like coming back to breath so let's just give some people some examples you know for the lay person how they can get their logical head around how would uh, you know, someone who sits at a computer all day and doesn't breathe properly, how would yeah. that influence back pain? Sure. Two major ones. Um, obviously, the way we're breathing, if we're breathing through our upper chest and we're using our accessory secondary muscles, so the scalenes and those, they if they tighten up with the sternocleidomastoid, they'll make the head migrate forward, which makes you more of a mouth breather. But also what that does is displaces your weight forward. So now you've got tension more on your back. So when your head goes forward, internal rotation, that displaces. So for every inch your head goes forward, every two and a half centimeters, you're doubling the weight of your head. Now, an average weight of someone's head is about 8% of your body weight. So let's just say, I'm not 100 kilos, but just easy maths, 100 kilos. Okay, so I then have 8% of 8 kilos, 16 kilos, you know, more than that. So if your head is forward more, that can cause. So if you're typing, reading something, as we're saying down on our phone, that's displacing this. Now we're lengthening the fascia, which then if you hold it there for long enough, um, will then change or there'll be an adaptation of that structure because the environment has then put it in a new position. The other one that you see is that when they do that breathing, if they're like chest breathing, they sometimes pump the ribs and they flush into the back so they get hyperextension on one joint so the joint in the lumbar spine keeps on breathing in because the diaphragm the cure of the diaphragm goes in inside down the spine and connects to the l123 and that will hinge the lumbar spine if you're just rather than breathing through your belly and the diaphragm in your belly and if we're not getting lateral expansion we get ribs locked down and then the other one that happens is when people Again, don't breathe properly. The back where the lumbar spine is, the quadratus lumborum or the ribs and your kidneys, that gets locked down too. Um, and, and that leads to lots of other issues too. So um, I think that's that's some of the key points there. On that the one, key yeah. points. And what about, um, I think a good one as well, is scar tissue from, say, a C-section or mm-hmm. uh 
hernia operation, yeah, appendix, so appendix think, operation. Yeah, so any of those operations, obviously, whenever, I mean, I've been in my wife's C-section, so I've seen this, I've been to a couple of different operations, and when the surgeon goes in and has time, he picks the line of his cut and the sutures and so on, but when it's an emergency C-section or so on, there can be complications. When the the rectus, the internal oblique, and the transverse, the three layers of abdominals cut through and they're spread and they come through, they all have to knit back. So those three layers have to knit back. In that process, sometimes nerves can be compressed. If that happens or the scar tissue inhibits a nerve from a motor control or a sensory response, we may not be able to activate that part of the body. So I've worked on a lot, a lot of scar tissues, Mm -hmm. C-sections, appendix injuries, um, and lower back injuries. And once we get that fascia and clear the scar and then reintegrate and make sure there's nothing happening underneath, it's like magic. And um, the, the system, the lights in the tree starts to come back on, the muscle starts to fire. You can see the skin tone change. You can see like hair, you can see tonality, the texture of the skin feels different a week, two weeks later. So again, when you have scarring or injuries or um, like guarding mechanisms, so reciprocal inhibitions or ways that like when um, Stuart Riggle used to call it glute amnesia when you get a lower back injury you look at skyline tests and sometimes the the right side is a smaller muscle in the bum so because the nerves that feed that don't feed it um, and don't nutrition it and they don't take the waste product but also they're not getting enough activation so that muscle doesn't turn on so now one of the major stabilizers of the major pillars or platforms in our base or foundation of our body can turn on so when you have injury that confuses or sets in a guarding mechanism so your body doesn't get pain, sometimes after the injury, the body continues to use that old programming because you haven't done any rehab to re-educate the new integrated body. Your body's still walking around with the kind of the same strategy that it used when it was inflamed, when it was sore, or when you were on crutches or whatever treatment you have. So I think that's, that's important to know as well. Mm. And... It's interesting too because I have seen people have surgery and then they get a, like a second injury from the surgery mm. because they haven't had the scar tissue worked on. So they go and get the disectomy. <laughs> knee is very common. A lot of lower back injury end up having knee surgeries and knee problems again because, again, the hip and core contribute to where that knee is going. So if the hips aren't in the right position, everything else on the knee is going to have a challenged position. So Again, we see that if the hip complex is compromised because of old injuries, it just feeds out from there. It's just a knock-on domino effect. Um, mm-hmm. And I've seen that heal as well or be, be addressed when we stabilize the hips, the core, the spine, and get the movement integration again. What about um, viscerosomatic reflex from gastrointestinal issues? <laughs> I don't have three days to talk about this. Um, so no, you just got to do a quick summary, quick. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you so think this... I got you to talk about it? Why do you think I started <laughs> podcasts to get everybody else to talk about these things? Because I can't work out how to talk about them. In- uh, I do like the long form podcast where we can stay here for three hours and talk about that. But um, I don't think your audience would hang around. Um, okay, dysosomatic reflex. Um, really, when the organ gets stressed, the body has a higher priority, and the body will say instead of putting that electromagnetic energy to the muscles to make it contract, it needs that electromagnetic energy to run the system or to feed the nutrients or give it limb for blood or circulation or oxygen. So the body will sometimes scavenge or cut that connection off. So most of the time it down regulates uh, 
it's like not working at optimal force. Um, we also use this as an indicator in medicine for heart attacks when you get pain running down the arm because the nerves that feed the heart also innovate the chest and the shoulder and the tricep and some of these other muscles. So you get that pain and the nerve complex going down will get compressed. And that's a viscerosomatic reflex when the organ, which is the viscera, has a reflex to conserve itself or to stop the muscles contracting down on it so it won't let the abdominals contract. And therefore, they can't contribute to the stabilization. So it doesn't matter if you've done all a week's training, two months training, you eat something, you get food poisoning, you won't be able to train the next day. It's the same level of kind of understanding. You have an intolerance or a leaky gut or a microbiome or uh, dysbiosis, some kind of a bug issue, and you can't contract down. You can't tie up the load. You can't support the system. So the muscles, the fascia, the connection tissue won't fire because it, it, it will not give itself pain and come down on like an inflamed or bruised or sore organ. So I think that's my shortest uh, viscerosomatic reflex. The shortest, yeah. And so things like I think a lot of women will be able to relate to this, especially in like around premenstrual. Totally. And it's so common. And, and unfortunately, over the last couple of years, it's only got worse in younger people. So you're getting more ectopic, you're getting more cysts, you're getting more ovary complications, infertilities. And biggest thing I see is, you know, with the females is sprays, chemicals, just mm. too much overload in their system. Um, and that's causing lots and lots of problems. Um, so, yeah, really sad to see. Mm, it is sad to see. But yeah, that can really shut down the core and the back and and drive a lot of injuries like I've had a lot of pelvic issues from having a hypertonic pelvic floor we did touch about this mm. um in another episode where I had amazing physio that I work with a couple of girls Joe and um Tam come on and we talked about sometimes needing internal pelvic floor work do you want to just touch on that a little bit for the listeners on how those yeah, things I mean, can affect. And um, the pelvic floor, pubic coccygeal muscles, the bottom of the pelvic floor, the nutcracker effect that Diane Lee talks about and stabilizes in the pelvis. She talks about, and Gary Gray and everybody else says, the pelvis is the gateway to movement. So if your pelvic floor is compromised or you've had some complications through birthing or some other issue, then you'll need to get a physio or an osteo or someone that does some internal work sometimes to release some of the orbiter muscles or some of the other muscles that go around or scar tissue. Um, and then there's various different exercise techniques and treatments you can get that may have to address some of the scar tissue. And there is some, some of the kind of lifestyle factors that you might want to change as well. So um, very important to address those if you do have that because that pelvic floor is very important for females because the female's pelvis has a, an extra third surface area and it also has a more challenged um, angles. So the kind of the setup is a lot more challenging. So we need more support and structure in the female pelvis and female pelvis has also give birth as well, which is a, an amazing thing to do. And, and then to be able to do that, it has to have stability then afterwards. And also even for the women who've had C-section and haven't had vaginal trauma, there's a change in the relationship of the core once you cut that muscle. And so then there are, I'm finding a lot of women have pelvic floor issues even though they had a C-section. You can go back and listen to that other episode. But, you know, I think I think like what Donald and I are trying, and I are trying to say here is that 
you know, you have to really do an assessment of all of these muscles, like the inner unit, outer unit. Do they fire in the right sequence? You know, what happens to your core specifically when you strategize a lift or a load or, you know, and I think that's that's really hard for a physical therapist to do because, you know, we pick up a lot of stuff, right, when clients just are walking around the gym. We say to a client, just pick up a weight. Like I remember one of the biggest lessons I think you picked this up on when I was, you know, a new trainer and I was, you know, you, you're a person trainer, you're like, oh, okay, well, this person's paying me like all this money. I should pick up all their weights for them and put them down and move them around. And I think you actually picked me up and doing that saying, don't do that because it's like the best opportunity for you to actually see how they strategize movement when they're not thinking and they go to pick up a weight off the floor or they, you know, it, that's the beauty that personal trainers have is that they get to see people strategize movement and not other physical therapists don't really get to see that yeah sometimes it's it's yeah i mean uh, physios and physical therapists are two different professions for me so you know a physical therapist that actually looks at movement quality versus a soft tissue physio mm. very different field i mean if 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 you're working with someone that knows movement and they can feel that in their body, it's so much easier. But when they don't know it or don't understand it, then we do have to re-educate them and, and reintroduce their body to their body again or their body parts back to their body and reintegrate them. Mm, it's really, it's, yeah, it's an interesting part of the assessment. But so yeah. diet's really important, emotion's really important, scar tissue. And I think the whole birthing thing, I feel like birth is getting more and more severe in a way, like it's becoming more and more and more medicalized. And so there's actually a lot of women who just suffer a lot of trauma from the birthing experience that needs well, to be. I think that goes all the way back to, you know, what, you know, Sally Ann Fallon and nutrition, physical nutrition degeneration. I mean, you, I mean, I've seen it over my career, you know, we are not getting healthier and stronger as a society and as a species. I'm seeing more and more challenges and, uh, less and less um, kind of common sense approaches to doing stuff. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, as I said, I think I'm getting the grumpy old man kind of thing, but it's, it's kind of like my, my observation anyway from my clinical experience is that there's a lot more challenges out there to navigate these days than there used to be. It's huge. I mean, I remember like just when I had my clinic and clients bring their kids in, you know, and I just, I, I just can't believe like the integrity of children's tissue nowadays and just how soft and floppy they can be and how they just cannot stand in space. You know, you watch well, them, I can't stand up for too long, I've got to lean on something, got to, you know, like. I get on my soapbox now and start talking about organic food and real food and everything else, but that's, to me, that's the big the big change. Um, I've had two, two boys now, 19 and 21, and, and, you know, I've seen all their friends, you know, go through dentistry and injuries and all sorts of stuff and tissues be pulled apart and you know we got away with it i don't know maybe it was just the organic food maybe it was some other stuff maybe it was their genes but you know what it worked and i'm i'm just fascinated that people don't see it that food used to be grown this way all the time we didn't have to label food and put stuff on it to call it how it comes out of the earth but We've changed the way that we do that in our big cities. We eat big volumes, and that's an excuse to just throw calories in. And people need to take responsibility and start looking at nutrition. And I think that's the biggest issue for me there with the, what we've been talking about, integrity of the core, integrity of the back, the tissue makeup. 
the body fell apart because the substance, the material you made it out of and the environment you put it in wasn't strong enough. So change it. Mix it up a little bit. Have better quality. Learn how to navigate the environment that you're in better, whether that's being sitting down, moving with your kids, sports. And I think that from there on, it's kind of like, yeah, we've got to look at ourselves and say, if we can't do this ourselves, reach out for help and ask someone. Because um, certainly it's a it's a bigger industry than it was when I started back in the 90s. It's huge. So um, I, I guess I just wanted to sort of touch on some of the modalities that you use with her because I think you, like, you can have a look at your, like Kathy talks about it quite a bit on her Instagram and so people can go and have a look you know, get, get, you can see, well, I guess people want to see what it's like to work with you and what you would do. And, but yeah. some of your approaches were very out of the box, you know, and you've worked with a lot of people. I'm, you know, I just, I'm just picking Kathy. I'm, I'm, I'm so like, you know, conditioned to being around the surgeons or the doctors, the physios have been around. I don't think my approach is out of the box. I think everybody else's approach is so um, stagnated that mm. we're not looking at the multifaceted approach. So that's, that's an interesting observation. You know, I mean, for me, doing the things that we did with Kathy, I definitely got a bit of help. Um, she had a disc injury, L5, S1, um, quite a broad disc, 13 mil. Um, surgeon said she needs surgery. Um, went and started to do the normal things that I would do for a client that's in pain there to reposition the joint. Um, she was so inflamed. Um, she was on painkillers for about two weeks while we just managed the pain and got her into traction and created space in the joint. Um, did various different ways to create space in the preclumbar fascia, Aldoa techniques. Um, I got, I did quite a bit of uh, foot reflexology and releasing the nervous system and the organ systems, helping kidney, liver. And then I did some cranial release as well in a, uh, it's a traction table. Um, so brought her into that. And then I taped the back um, at different times. There was different taping techniques. So at the early stage, it was stabilized and centralized. And then was stabilized support. And then it was just support. So there was a combination of strapping tapes. There was a combination of strapping tapes with kineso tapes. And then there was just kineso tape. Um, and then the exercise protocol went from day one till kind of three months, basically. And for the first four to six weeks, she was pretty much on her back most of the time, get up just to do the exercise movement, treatment, whatever we need to do and relax. Um, as the days went on, pain went down, got off the meds. And, um, then the journey of re educating our spine to move, infant development, Swiss ball training, and then back to kind of traditional weight training, which we would call squats, lunges, bends, push, pull, dumbbell work, cable work, um, and stopped her doing some of the yoga postures and the positional awarenesses that she was doing that she wasn't aware. She was overusing her good range of motion and coordination instead of using strength. And she'd known that she had let down on the strength side of her training, she had to be doing as much. So we changed those and uh, she's been able to manage that from there. But she didn't need the surgery. And we repositioned or I repositioned the joint to um, positional awareness and stretching and proper strapping exercises. And I referred out to Paul and other people um, 
to get help as well and ask for advice. Mm, it's just Which a really you know what you do with clients. Yeah, well, this is yeah how we would work with a client, but I think it's just interesting because I can say who who it is. It's not confidential, and, and you can jump online and watch Kathy. She actually does these really cool dancing reels now, and you see her train and move, and she's like, you know, she's she's amazing, and she's just getting better, and you know, and I think it's good to see her as well because you know she's over 50 now so and you generally associate with being over 50 as declining in movement and not being able to move whereas every time I see Kathy I'm like she just keeps getting better and better you know so that's why I wanted to mention her I mean you've done some amazing transformations that I know of other injuries and stuff like that but and I think also what is also good about Kathy is that she was someone who was eating organic food and doing a lot of movement and doing all the right things and a lot of people will go, well, why does this happen to me? We have to understand I didn't use me or Kathy as my example in organic food when I used them. I used my sons because they were eating organic food from day one. Mm-hmm. Kathy and me only got introduced to organic food. So our material, our organs, our fascia, our tissue weren't made on that material. We had, I had McDonald's when I was younger shitty stuff so i've had chemicals so yeah most definitely they're they're factors that definitely play heavy in the rehab role of of all of those things but yeah kathy's a great example there's many out there that once you do all those factors there are alternatives and, and sometimes the only approach is the surgery um because some of that could be too hard for people or don't have access to people that can help them. and i think that's important too right like i was talking with a client the other day who was saying she didn't want to take this medication and i'm like we have to look at the context of everything. And if you're in pain mm-hmm. and you need pain medication so that you can actually move and get fluid to the joint and everything to get it healing, then, then there's an appropriate application for that. There's an appropriate application for surgery. We're not saying, you know, yeah. don't do all these things. I used to be such a purist. I never wanted to take an aspirin. And then I've worked out all the amazing things that aspirin can actually do that are not pain relief, but, you know, you can you can use aspirin in a really appropriate way in a functional medicine kind of space. So, yeah, I think it's having someone like Donal when you have an injury who can assess the whole thing, and I, I feel like that too sometimes with clients, like you become a project manager, okay, I'll talk to your doctor, I'll talk to the osteo, I'll give them all their jobs and then I'll make sure that they're all actually working together, not against each other, someone who can look at it in this holistic way and then design a program that normally takes a good six months to a year. Like it's not going to get better. Yeah. And that depends on the injury as well. So like, you know, as I say to all disc injuries, you're about a year before you're out of the woods. We could probably get you out of pain and moving efficiently in about two or three months. And that's enough kind of for most people to say, Oh, I'll go back bike riding. And that's when they mm-hmm. stuff it all up. So you can get yourself out of pain pretty quickly, but you will not be able to move efficiently or you're at the risk of re-injuring for the next six months at least. And then after that six-month period, if you keep injury-free, your chances diminish from there. But we need the right nutrition to make that tissue rebuild. And it takes a full year for most collagen, deep-lying tissue of your spine to resurface itself or to reheal itself. So I know a lot of the, the annual fibrosis and the discs around the fibers of the spine take a long time to heal so we need the right collagen we need the right nutrition we need the right rest and the right stimulus so yeah sometimes it takes a long process and some people don't want to do it or can't do it so they have to pick the other alternative 
And also I think working collaboratively is a big thing I always push. Like I've been a level four track practitioner for a while, but I just, because of the pandemic and everything, I haven't had enough hands-on mm. experience. So I am constantly asking for help from Susie. You know, mm. I would, if, if someone would fly up to Queensland for work with you, I would, if I couldn't fill in those gaps, like we have to get into this thing of going, well, the, I'm trying to get the result for the client. How am I going to get the result for the client? And who can I work with rather than owning that journey for them? But I I really want to say um, that working with Donal was pivotal for my career. And Donal runs mentor mentoring programs for trainers. Um, and I I mean I've I've mentor, I've had you and I've had probably Mark Buckley and Susie Neville have probably been my biggest influences um and you've all taught me different things and that's why I think sometimes it's actually good to have a few different mentors and get a few different perspectives um but Donal please tell us about your mentorship program tell us sure. about how you could work with you as a client yeah so I'm based up in um now Sunshine Coast so I'm doing a lot of hands-on rehab um Clients will come in to work with me from around the local area or sometimes come interstate and fly in and work for a day or two days with me and then bring that home program home and follow the treatment. But I'm hands-on, so they do need to come back to revisit. So I'm not really designed that way to do um, um, online. Um, I do mentorship programs for Czech industry people, people that want to start the academy or working their way through the courses, uh, personal trainers, gym instructors, physios, chiros, osteos that want to bring a rehab element to their business. So I run mentorship programs up here on the Sunshine Coast and workshops as well, face-to-face, hands-on, practical stuff um, in 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 uh, Iowa here where we live up in the Sunshine Coast. So place to achieve the website, check out on Instagram that's where we're doing most of our advertisement and shout outs um, if you want to find us and contact us yeah but look out for Kathy because you know the beauty and the brawn yeah. <laughs> our goats, our goats are becoming very popular now your goats your goats are really cute <laughs> Instagram hits they got more followers than I do I know right and and how I'm like I have to say I, I'm really amazed at your sons and how what amazing human beings they've grown up to be. But especially looking at um, Josh, he's yeah. gone to play basketball yeah. overseas. Yeah, yeah, he's in the states playing basketball. We're, we're hoping to get him back now in the next five or six weeks uh, for a short stint anyway before he starts his next year. So um, yeah, he's uh, he's six foot seven now and he's put on about. 10 kilos of muscle being over there in college. So it's coming back to scare me now. It's kind of role reversal for, for the rest of his life, I think. I can't believe he's taller than you. Because you're how tall are you? You're tall. I'm 6'4". So yeah. he's 3, 4 inches. Um, and he's, he's becoming a bit of a, a brute too. So he'll be a monster. So I'll yeah. have to check him out on Instagram. But, yeah, what an amazing story. Do you think, honestly, do you think you had a lot of influence in his athletic career? Um, yeah. I did a couple of things that I should have done. Um, I did some rewiring of his nervous system by Richard Schmidt, where I stimulated both sides of his body. Mm-hmm. I made him play drums to get him coordinated. Um, got him into different sports that created different hand-eye coordination. And, um, yeah, it worked. He's, he's a pretty good basketballer and well-coordinated and um, seems to work really well with that kind of attribute. But, um, yeah, it's all him. I just pointed him in the right direction. He... Um, He's the one that wanted to do that sport. He had 
done other sports like jiu-jitsu and soccer and rugby and other things. But um, he, he got into the basketball and, and has worked his ass off for the last seven years to get to where he is now. And there he is playing college basketball. It's amazing. It's amazing. So thank you so much, Donal, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And I encourage everybody to get in touch with Donal and Kathy up at their beautiful property in Noosa and go and have a visit. I'm hoping I'm definitely going to have to come up and be have to. Thank you very much and thanks for your time. And, uh, yeah, look to see uh, you in the future. Thanks, Donal. Thanks, Lena. I'm Lena Lutz and you've been listening to The Body Never Lies. If you haven't yet, please go to your favourite podcast app and subscribe, rate and review this podcast. All the resources and references from this episode are waiting for you on my website, leelalutz.com. Just click on podcast and look for this episode. Now join me next week for another episode of The Body Never Lies. Thank you so much for listening.